everyone welcome to the fourth episode now of shallow research uh this week we are kicking things off with me laura here in california educational researcher and christina down in florida hi christina hello christina is a film scholar um and you know jack of many trades in addition to her primary pursuit um but this week speaking of jacks of many trades we are going to get into diy or do-it-yourself culture um and more specifically both crafters and kind of makers and maker spaces and that whole world which we're kind of interested in have dabbled in um but haven't fully immersed ourselves in yet and so you know i think it's exciting because we were we were we were um doing something a little different with our deep dive this week in which we've invited yes. um, an expert uh, to join us for the deep dive to talk about uh, maker culture and what it is to be a maker um, potentially in comparison to a crafter. And so we're excited to uh, dive into the world of making and crafting in general do-it-yourselfness. Yes. And uh, the good news is that um, our expert Josh, who's joining us, does have genuine knowledge. I mean, it's <laughs> it's hard to surpass our ability to hone knowledge from Dr. Google. <laughs> but uh, our friend Josh is going to be bringing some experience from his work as an architect and in creating um, fab labs and other maker spaces. And then our guest who knows best, giving a little bit of a different perspective, is very special. I know we say this every week, but... <laughs> Since your mother will be joining us, I think that we can we can safely put her at kind of the top of the heap. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I'm contractually obligated to um, say that and agree with you completely. Um, but uh, and she is my mother. Janet um, is joining us as part of our guest who knows best segment this week to discuss her. Um, I think if I'm if I'm doing the math right her 20 years or over 20 years of quilting experience, um, which yeah. if that's 10,000 hours is where is 10 years, then she's got 20,000 hours of quilting. Um, and she'll, she'll give us some tips on how to get into quilting and crafting in general. Yeah. So another true expert, I mean, we're really upping the game here and then we're going to round <laughs> stuff up with a few other recommendations kind of related to this topic. So should we kick things off with our deep dive? Yeah, let's dive in. So jumping into our deep dive, this episode, we're talking all about makers, maker spaces in DIY or do-it-yourself culture. And to add some semblance of credibility to our discussion about this, um, we have our friend Josh joining us, who has some legitimate professional and personal connections to this arena, as opposed to me, who has mainly just perhaps walked by maker spaces and Googled a lot of things on the internet. Um, so he's gonna um, tell us a little bit about himself first. So Josh, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Yes, I do have um, I do have some legitimate nerd cred as well. Um, 
I did my undergraduate degree in architecture and worked in that field for about eight years before going back to school and getting a graduate degree in design computation and have now been kind of working on the engineering and fabrication side for the last eight or so years, which has uh, had me cross paths with a lot of different makers and offered opportunities to visit maker spaces and um, have, a, I would say, a little more than a tangential relationship with that culture. Yeah. So I'm going to ask right now, what is design computation and should I be switching my job? Um, to answer the second part of the question first, yes. <laughs> uh, and so design computation is, uh, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, it's basically looking at uh, design in kind of an algorithmic sense. Uh, so it's kind of what are the rules uh, or are there rules that can be defined for how things are kind of designed and created? Um, that's a kind of, you know, that's a kind of big overarching way of of considering it um the very kind of practical side is uh i'm kind of a computer modeling nerd um so doing 3d modeling uh and uh, some very kind of uh, basic programming in order to create geometry that then can be used for visualization or fabrication uh, mm -hmm. that's the practical mm -hmm. side so I hope I'm remembering this detail of your life correctly, but in addition to your current connections to this work, in your grad school work at MIT, you also were involved with maker culture there. Wasn't there a lab that you were connected to? Yeah, so um, a lot of kind of, I guess, early-ish maker culture, or it's kind of, it's somewhat related. So um, there are things uh, referred to as fab labs, uh, and that is short for fabrication laboratory. And that was kind of the brainchild of Neil Gershenfeld, who leads the Center for Bits and Atoms at the Media Lab at MIT. Um, and they have they have kind of a whole uh, fab lab network and um, uh, a whole uh, uh, fab lab kind of culture and professional organization that helps kind of set up and organize these things all around the world. And it's, it's very maker based in terms of empowering people how to kind of get over the hurdle of being very, uh, of being intimidated by things like electronics and circuitry and uh, mechanical engineering and mechanical design and kind of uh, teaching them all of that stuff and basically how they can how they can become kind of producers rather than just consumers. Um, hmm. And so I did some work with them and actually was uh, kind of involved with the creation of the first mobile fab lab, which was taking a trailer and converting that into a fab lab that could be driven around and kind of oh, brought cool. to different schools. Um, and hmm. it actually lived up in the Bronx for quite a while um, oh, and was that. connected with a school up there and it had a laser cutter um, and a CNC machine, uh, CNC stands for computer numeric controlled. So it's basically, um, a machine that has a, a spinning cutter bit in it. Um, it can also have other types of tools and it's driven by a computer to kind of control its motion. So it can kind of cut out parts and make shapes and things like that. Um, so there was a whole bunch of this equipment in that trailer and it kind of got driven around and displayed at different places to promote the fab labs. 
That's very cool. Yeah. No, and and I'm speaking of the intimidation factor. I mean, I think that is something that um, kind of makes the maker world still seem a little bit mysterious to me because like my orientation to it is that my office at Stanford is really close to that kind of a space on Stanford's campus. So I like walk by every day and I'm like, look at these interesting things that people are doing that look a lot more interesting than what I'm doing, (laughs) but I probably have no actual skill um, in being able to create. And then, you know, just living in Silicon Valley in general, I would say there's a pretty strong community of other families that we know that are interested in maker spaces and participate in maker fair and everything like that. Um, so I was telling Christina, like last year when maker fair rolled around, you know, I got an email from like another parent at the school that was like, Oh, is anyone going to be there? I have two robots that I'm debuting. <laughs> and they're like these advanced, <laughs> super cutting, you know, edge technology sorts of things. Uh, but then on the other hand, like there were some actual student second grade level you know, representatives from yep. our elementary school <laughs> as well. So may- maybe I'm just intimidated for no reason. Yeah, I think it, I well, mean, I, I, I do think that's, that's a big part of it. Um, is there's kind of a mystique around a lot of this stuff. And I think if, if you have someone who's very well versed in it that, you know, kind of talks you through or walks you through how this stuff actually happens and works, um, a lot of the, the, that mystery gets pulled back. And I, there's really, you know, I think there's, there's just some basics that people can be taught. And then it's like, oh, okay, so if this works this way, then if I wanna make something sure. do this, then maybe I just have to add that. And then, you know, you run into technical problems, but those are very easily solved because, you know, you can post things on the internet and just say, oh, how come I'm trying to connect these two things and this isn't working? And my assumption is you'd get an answer within seconds. Yeah, so what does it mean to, you know, to be a maker? Um, Because it's interesting from my reading on this, there's some basis in hacker culture or the idea yeah, of kind I think of it's, taking things apart, yes. figure that out, and then but yes. maker has a kind of a maker has a more positive <laughs> uh, kind of vibe to it, <laughs> depending on how you think yeah. about it. But what is it? Yeah, what is I mean, what does it mean to be a maker? I think it's just the PR term, term for a hacker. <laughs> <laughs> so then, what is it to be um, a hacker? In this no, sense? it's. I mean, it is a good question. I think, and I mean, those are really interesting questions. I don't necessarily have a good answer, but I was actually, um, mm-hmm. you know, in preparation for this, I was kind of going back and, and doing a little rereading of some things that I kind of know about. Um, and so hacker culture is really interesting. I mean, the whole history around kind of the development of tools and uh, kind of people taking technology and kind of repurposing it. And I think, you know, that's where kind of the name hack comes from is, is basically it's people who are interested in taking things apart, figuring out how they worked, putting them back together. And then all of a sudden thinking about, well, okay, if I, if this does this, then, and I want to make it do that, what do I need to do? So what's interesting is, you know, a lot of the history, um, or at least the part of it that I know about through MIT was started with the MIT Model Train Club, um, which was started back in the 40s, I believe, 40s or 50s. And that was when some of the first computers, you know, were were being kind of put together and um, they were very hard to get access to. But the Train Club was really, you know, it was a group of people who were very interested in taking things apart and putting them back together. And I think they, I think it was some of the the early kind of participants in the Model Train Club that, at least some people believe coined the term hacker. Um, 
And, and it was really just that it was kind of playing around with stuff. So they had these, you know, these model train sets and they would set them up and then slowly they started to understand how these, um, these kind of microprocessors or early kind of computers worked and would start to try to get the computers to control the train sets. And so they would have a whole train system that was being kind of completely controlled by computer. It was planning out, you know, where the different trains were and how to move the signals and switches and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, I think things that were more popularized were then, you know, the Silicon Valley kind of hacker clubs, which were, you know, again, the early development of personal computers where it was yeah. hobbyists who, again, like to take this stuff and put it together and see what they can make out of it. Um, and then, you know, there was, you know, th there was things like um, early things like phone freaking, which was basically messing mm -hmm. with the way the tones worked in phones so that they could kind of... Uh, make long distance calls for free. So I think it all really, it, it's all really based around the same stuff, which is how do you, how do you put stuff together? How do you actually make stuff? So yeah, maker's probably a much friendlier and much more generic term for a hacker. I think hacker has, you know, a lot more kind of computer connotations to it, especially this day and age. It, it really seems mm. to apply more to people who do computer programming. And maker can be anything from people who do quilting to people who build backyard robots or hovercrafts or, you know, right. pretty much anything. Well, you know, Rocket Day is coming up at Ivy School. I'm so <laughs> connected to my earlier comment. The school year <laughs> kicks off with each family bringing their own launchable rocket nice. <laughs> to a lawn near the school. Um, <laughs> I think I'm in charge of that this year. So of course there's like a wiki page or something with instructions. <laughs> so I better figure out how to get an, a rocket to launch. Um, but speaking but this of is... like the sort of the way that it's presented or sort of the friendlier term, I mean, I think there's this side of it that seems like a bunch of the really intelligent, you know, nerdy people kind of, seeing how they can mess with the world for better or for worse. Um, but then there's a piece of it that seems like kind of reframing sort of traditional working class trade skills into something that sounds a little bit sleeker, <laughs> a little bit trendier. Um, so is, I mean, is that something that you found? Is that how you sometimes seen maker culture viewed? Uh, that's a good question. I honestly, not really, not from my perspective, but, you know, I spend the majority of my time in a very kind of small niche area. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say that I have a good kind of broad perspective on, on how, on how like a, a broader audience views kind of maker culture as, is it, you know, is it kind of a blending of, of trade skills and stuff like that? Uh, and, and kind of, more nerdiness. I'm not really sure. I mean, I, 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 I certainly think my impression is that um, the maker space, not as a kind of, uh, not as like the physical place where people meet and it has tools, but the maker space as as kind of the cultural space, um, uh, really is pretty. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, kind of non-hierarchical, right? I mean, it's really based mm -hmm. on what you can make, not what your academic pedigree is or, you know, you know whether you have yeah, a degree a in this, point. that, or the other thing. It's just kind of who, who makes the coolest stuff and then um, it, it maybe is most open to kind of sharing how they do that.
So what is uh, a maker space or a maker fair? How would you describe it? Um, I mean, a maker space, I think, is just kind of a glorified shop. Um, it's it. Mm -hmm. I think it can be lots of different things. Um, I would say the 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 assumption these days is like, you know, if you were to differentiate a makerspace from a shop is that it, there's certain tools that a makerspace has, which would be things like a 3D printer, maybe a laser cutter, maybe a CNC machine. Uh, they would have computers. Um, so it's kind of they would have more techno mechanical tools mm. as opposed to uh, just kind of typical shop tools, or I guess the differentiation, maybe it would be, it would have a lot more kind of computer controlled machines as opposed to just manually controlled machines. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, I think when we were um, discussing it, you know, we were also though noting that, so I gave the example earlier, of kind of the Stanford lab that I walk past every day. And it's interesting to see these students who see a lot of appeal, you know, in that kind of work, which I also do think, you know, seems very interesting and creative. And um, I want to go someday and like just explore their whole setup. But at the same time, I feel like those same Stanford students would never say that they wanted to be a carpenter. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's kind of, it, I feel in some ways it feels like um, that skill set has both been kind of brought into the, into the next century um, and also rebranded as more of um, an upper class pursuit at the same time that these spaces are giving people more access and like opportunity to tools that they can use to create together. So it, seem, it seems like maybe a little bit of a tension there. Maybe, although I mean, it, so from my perspective, having kind of a good mix and and I would say kind of maybe a uniquely deep appreciation for craft versus making. And I do think there is a big mm -hmm. distinction there. Um, you know, so I, I run an engineering department at a specialty fabricator. So we're doing a lot of kind of very complex computer modeling to create right. these very large uh, geometrically complex projects. And we have to kind of break them down into all their parts and pieces. We then have to translate that information in a way that it can go to uh, large industrial CNC machines and the parts can be cut, cut out. And, but then they have to be reassembled and they're re they're assembled by traditional craftsmen. Um, and, you know, I would say there's, there's really no amount of work that we could do to make everything go together perfectly. There still is um, a huge amount of kind of craft and material know-how and knowing how different materials work to create these final products, which really look beautiful and amazing. Um, and I, I would say, I mean, my guess would be anyone who kind of enters the makerspace and, and thinks that they can kind of go in and if they have good technical skills, they'll be able to create these amazing things very quickly realizes um, just how difficult it is that there's still so much kind of uh, manual interaction with objects. Mm. And to get something to turn out that looks great as opposed to, yeah, that looks like I made it. Um, right. <laughs> there's that, you know, there is a huge distance between those two things between, between like good and something that looks professional. There is a huge right. distance and a huge amount of just kind of, of skill, um, trade skill that is really important. So people may not go into these things and come out saying they want to be a carpenter, but my guess is a lot of people would go in there and say, I wish I was a carpenter. So I know how to do this really well. Yeah, and this kind of brings up the um, Laura and I were talking about this, but 
within and what you're describing, maker spaces have this kind of interesting combination of amateur and professional uh, kind of engagements with making things. And also, I wonder, I mean, you're working in one or re related to one professionally, but are maker spaces oriented towards making, you know, something just once? Or are, you know, because that's kind of the, the goal of a professional, right, is to learn a skill and repeat it multiple times to refine versus a space where one has a series of problems or projects that are slightly different or wholly different each time. Um, so, I mean, how would you describe kind of the orientation of, of makers? Are they trying to refining? Are they doing new projects? Um, it, yeah. it, that's a really good question. Um, so makerspaces do, I believe, still have kind of a unique challenge in that um, they're, um, they're kind of aimed at, at this idea of just of community and making and exploring and experimentation. But the reality is everything in there costs money. And mm -hmm. generally, even if they can get funding to get open and get equipment, they still have spaces they have to pay rent on um, and they have all kinds of insurance and things like that. So um, they have kind of a, a tricky business model. Um, and there were a number of makerspaces that have gone out of business in the past because they were really the subscriber model, which was, you know, everyone would be so interested in being able to get access to 3D printers and laser cutters and uh, learn how to make basic cir circuits and do soldering that they would be willing to pay like effectively a gym fee to be able to go in and use this space whenever they wanted. And that, as far as I know, that model doesn't really effectively work uh, terribly well. Um, you see a lot more fab labs and maker spaces that are either associated with um, educational institutions. Um, there's um, kind of been an interesting drive to get uh, kind of create maker spaces within libraries where mm. it's, you know, already mm. kind of a community space and adding to like, you know, the importance of STEM education and providing access, um, you know, to anyone who's interested. Um, that is kind of an ongoing experiment. Um, some bigger kind of more professional oriented makerspaces have actually become incubators. So they do offer that kind of subscriber plan, but their bread and butter is basically trying to help uh, young companies get started uh, and then kind of launch. Mm. And, and I think that's where they get the, you know, the kind of money to stay afloat, but it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tricky thing. It, it, it seems kind of cool and nice, but it's a, it is a, a, I think a difficult business to kind of keep afloat um, just as kind of like a, a community space. Yeah, and so it makes sense that, you know, they would flourish within educational institutions that might have some broader support or broader purpose, you know, in terms of kind of using them as classroom space, that kind of thing, and be able to support them. But I really like the idea of people being able, like in the broader community, being able to kind of access those kinds of tools or just opportunities to learn very applied skills as well. Um, like one of the other things that we're talking about is that I'm starting to feel like I don't really have any visible skill set. Like <laughs> I sometimes wonder like what my children think I can do. <laughs> and I was talking about this with Abby, my six-year-old, and she was like, well, you make really great guacamole. <laughs> and I was like, it, that was like all she could come up with. And like she kind of understands my job, but I feel like um, – <laughs> 
I feel like she doesn't even see us reading anymore. You know, <laughs> like we're, what we read is like on our screens and occasionally maybe like a real life hard copy book. Um, but as opposed to, I don't know, I feel like for, during my childhood, my parents weren't like super handy or hands-on or anything, but you know, we would do things like garden together or build birdhouses or yeah, like fix things around the house. And yep. <laughs> I have been like a poor model of that apparently, but I feel like you, you maybe have demonstrated some of that to your children. You like built a deck and <laughs> you have actually created things within your home and involved your children in that. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, first I would say people have built empires off of guacamole. So if you can make <laughs> good guacamole, you can't knock Always good guacamole. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, so I say it's a double-edged sword only because I had this kind of, I'm like, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a terrible handyman in, in a lot of respects. Like, I'm not intimidated by having to try to, like, figure out why something isn't working and can be very rigorous about, you know, figuring out what the mm -hmm. problem is and then going about the solution. Um, I just kind of... I tend to do it at the wrong time or when I'm way too tired or stressed out by other things. So then little things really frustrate me. So, yeah, I mean, I know that, you know, so if you have this idyllic, you know, uh, thought that like here I was outside kind of cutting and chopping wood and, and building this deck, the reality was I was like uh, falling down, hurting myself and cursing nonstop. So... <laughs> I think my kids may associate building things with getting really angry and swearing a lot. <laughs> so I, well, that I seems did. like a passage Is that... right of childhood. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean. Would you say that you were a maker of that deck or were you like. No, no that's just, I mean. <laughs> so, I guess to me, like, you know, the maker thing. Yeah. Like, you know, it was interesting because you noted like there were a, th a couple things you noted in your email, like the the making it TV show, which I hadn't heard of at all. I mean, we just you know, we cut the cord a while ago. So we're just like we we only live on Apple TV, which means our commercials are, are not <laughs> typical commercials. Um, but I watched the promo for it. And it's interesting because that's really a crafting show as far as I can right. tell. Um, so it's interesting because mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like, well, yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't deny that those people could call themselves makers, but again, that's a very generic term. So it's kind of like, is somebody who builds a deck a maker? I guess so. I would, you know, I would say you're just, you're doing more like rough carpentry. Um, uh, some people would do right. finished carpentry, but, but for me, it's rough. As opposed uh, to, so would it be making if you were like, I need a deck, let me get six um, Apple Pros. <laughs> to model this thing, print out like a, you know, and then. Yeah, right, it. right. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna 3D that, yeah. print my deck. Um, <laughs> right, yes. Even there, I would say, you're not being really being a maker, you're just, you're, you're, you're making a really expensive deck. Um, I, so there is a sense of making things that may be that you're not re, you're not doing something that is ordinary, sort of in the sense of every day, but there's kind of like new design problems or making something. Yeah, different. I think they're just, and again, this is just a very kind of um, personal mm -hmm. yeah. view of it, but mm -hmm. I think there have to be, I have, to, I think there has to be some kind of creative reuse of something or creative reinterpretation mm -hmm. of something. Um, it's not mm -hmm. that you would necessarily have to make something new. It's just you would have to, in, you could even interpret existing things in a new way. And then that would inform how you go about actually making it. And that to me is, would be kind of the, the interesting part of it. There, there's, I think there's, 
there's just got to be a big part of kind of discovery or or maybe reframing is a better term um yeah like you could build a deck and be kind of a maker about it but it it wouldn't be just 3d printing a deck in the way that a tick is typically made and you're just 3d printing it it would somehow have to be just kind of a a somewhat novel or innovative uh reconceptualization about what a deck is or about how you assemble a deck or something like that like a deck that folds up that you can take with you with <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. well because this is what laura and i you know we were sort of talking about which is is the not i mean i'm not going to peg make the rise of the maker to this but the things we're describing i'm assuming that the deck you built is for a, a home that you own whereas if you live in an apartment um, where you don't own that space and you don't have a garden or a yard those are the kinds of things that become restricted just because of where you live you know i mean you're not going to build things for a place that you don't you're not going to potentially be at for a long time and so the growth of spaces like maker spaces or library spaces um, you know become these shared high-tech garages <laughs> you know and workshops and and sort of if that becomes part of this this um kind of the rise of more transient living or things like that potentially i mean i look at them as a, you know an important thing about them is that they at their best kind of in their ideal sense they democratize technology and and uh digital craft and things like that so you know again if 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 they can provide access to kids or adults and help demystify a lot of how things are made and what the process is to to kind of in making these things i think that's the most important thing because it it could be that someone learns something at a maker space and then they go home and and something you know breaks and rather than you know it could be an appliance or something like that and rather than being like okay i gotta call somebody to come fix this or i gotta completely replace it maybe they say well okay so i I know that this thing, you know, I can see that it's getting electricity, so it's probably not an electrical problem. You know, it's like they could start to troubleshoot and they could really start to think through or, yeah. or look at something like look at your dishwasher and be like, this is not a terribly complicated thing. Um, you know, the sensors and the programming about how it does what it does may be complicated, but it's, you know, it's basically a metal box or a plastic box that's insulated on the outside and it's got hmm. a water tube that comes into it. And then it's got a bunch of sensors that turn on different motors at different times and different valves. It's a whole bunch of collection of, as a, as a thing like dishwasher, it may be like, wow. But if you really break it down into all its constituent parts and pieces, it's not that big a deal. It's like, okay, water goes on, water goes off. Not a big deal, right? There's a bunch of valves. There's a bunch of this. That, now you may not understand like how all the sensors work and, sure. and again, how the, all the kind of, mm -hmm. um, uh, effectively the computers in the system control all of it but you can start to understand it as just an amalgamation of very pretty basic and straightforward things and i think that's that's one of you know if makerspaces are done right if they have the right kind of people in them that really kind of push that type of agenda of of demystification they can be really be wonderful because again that it it i think it it helps break that inertia of that's too complicated for me. 
Yeah, no, I, speaking of that, so related to that, um, Josh, I think you would really like this day. It's like an annual event in the town of Mountain View where the town is literally like, don't throw all your broken crap away. Like, take it to us. Like, there's a day you can go and people will just try to fix your oh, really? household objects. And, like, they'll attempt to fix, like, absolutely anything oh, that's very <laughs> that, cool. that you bring them. Um, and so, And I think it is such a cool reframing of, like, our current convenience culture where it's just like, you can get things so easily and so cheaply. And, you know, as I described earlier, my practical skill set is so diminished <laughs> that when I do break something, I'm like, Oh, all right. You know, just toss it out and buy a new one. Yep. <laughs> and it like, it never even occurs to me, like, could this be fixed? <laughs> like, and so, I mean, I think the town has this very, the people who run this day, you know, are making a very deliberate effort to do exactly what you described <laughs> to be like, let's just really break it down and look at it, you know, make see if it can be fixed easily and and tackle the problem so yeah it's like you just go to this giant kind of warehouse space and there's just all these people willing to help you figure out how to save your vacuum and things like that <laughs> so maybe there should be more of that um well more. and that's and I, you know i think in addition to just maker spaces which again i think the physical spaces whether they whether they last or they don't last honestly is is not is not super important because, you know, YouTube and basically all the videos and instructions that are out there that mm. people make. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, like, so mm -hmm. I, just, I just broke the side view mirror on our minivan pulling out of the garage. And, Not the Odyssey. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The, <laughs> the Black Cherry Pearl Odyssey. <laughs> yes, I do remember that Kate his wife um described this very specifically to me like the beauty of your black cherry pearl odyssey yeah and, <laughs> right not to go on a tangent but the thing is if you're gonna buy a minivan like if you're gonna buy a gunmetal gray minivan like i'm very sorry but you 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 just like don't try don't try to salvage some pride you're you're buying a minivan it is a utilitarian vehicle get the ugliest most obnoxious minivan you can find uh, as long as it serves your purposes, because it's, you know, I'm not going to like pull up and look cool in a gunmetal gray minivan. I'm just going to look as there's ridiculous. No, no, no there's no, right. especially when there's just like kid crap everywhere and smeared all over the place. And right. Anyways, so the game is already out. Yeah. So, uh, so I busted the side view mirror and, you know, at first I'm like, oh my God, how much is this going to cost me? Right. Cause I don't know anything about cars. I'm not, I'm not a car guy by any means, but then I'm like, okay, how difficult can this really be before I take it anywhere? I'm going to like, look up, how do you repair a side view mirror on a Honda Odyssey? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's amazing how many videos you find. And then basically I look up the part, like where you can buy it. So it looks like basically for $26, I can buy a new mirror and use just like a flathead screwdriver to pop out the glass of the old mirror and push in the new one. So my way of thinking is kind of like, okay, that's fantastic. Because if I, right. if I break it more then I'm, I have to take it in anyways. But if not, it's like, it's, it's a really cool thing. Um, and I had a similar thing happen with my other car when all of a sudden the temperature gauge started spiking. And, and I just couldn't, it didn't seem like the car was overheating or any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And again, like a little bit of research and then, you know, talking with some people that I work with who, who happen to know cars a little bit better. It turned out it was uh, just the, it was not the thermostat. It was the thermostat sensor. So there's basically mm -hmm. a little thermometer that checks to see how hot the car is 
and that sensor had just gone. That sensor cost um, 50 bucks. And when I had taken it to the dealership to ask them about the problem and kind of told them what troubleshooting I had done, they were going to charge me $700 to fix it. Yeah. So I think there's something very empowering. I mean, aside from the financial benefit, you know, just being able to as well, just like figure it out yourself. So I'm glad you can restore the minivan to its former glory. Maybe. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. And there well, may, there may be a lot of cursing involved <laughs> as that process transpires. We'll be sure to update our loyal listeners yes. in the next episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's all about a mindset, but not potentially a demeanor <laughs> that it is to, when you're sort of like troubleshooting yeah things. i think as long as you go into so, it with yeah. all right i'm just going to give this a try and we'll see what happens as opposed to uh you know the my day how my day turns out depends on my success and ability to do this which maybe <laughs> maybe is kind of a problem because i do see myself as someone who um can kind of fix and repair things and is very good with their hands that when i can't solve a problem or can't do it as quickly as i expected um that can be a little bit uh, um, kind of ego busting. Whereas if like some small thing in my house comes apart and I just manage to slide it back into place, <laughs> I'm like, my work here is done right. for the day. <laughs> That's a win. <laughs> it is a win. Well, tell us aside from, you know, this mirror that you're going to fix, what is like either some of the coolest things that you've made or seen made in maker spaces? Um, some of the coolest things I've seen made in maker spaces. Um, a lot of the stuff I've seen is not kind of so much uh, like techno wizardry. A lot of it is that I've seen, at least that, that I'm drawn to, is a return to craft because now there are kind of some additional tools that things which were once kind of very uniquely made or made in one-offs, it became very expensive to do that because you had to find like, you know, the, the one or few people who could do it. So I've seen people like a lot of people who seem to be uh, making their own guitars. Um, and not that, you know, someone well, who makes their own guitar is necessarily going to make a great guitar, but, you know, they, they kind of, they learn about what the process is. And I even, I had, uh, when we were still in Philadelphia, I was teaching um, a computer modeling class at the makerspace there. Um, and one of the students I had was a guy who, that's what he did. He was a guitar maker and he was really happy because I taught him some kind of uh, computer modeling and programming techniques, which would mm -hmm. allow him to create effective, effectively the rule set for creating guitar necks with frets but he could adjust those and really customize them by just changing some of the variables that went into this kind of rule set. So I really, things like that I really like where it's, and, and I guess that's very similar to what I do professionally is um, the things which are this kind of really interesting blending of traditional craft and kind of cutting edge technology to me are just the most interesting things because they're, they're so kind of, they're so kind of layered. Um, you know, when I see like, you know, lots of robots that kind of roll around and bump into walls, um, you know, and things with little like pincher arms that grab stuff. Uh, it's it's all very cool. And I think it's kind of wonderful to see, but it doesn't it's not very intriguing to me the way the way these kind of uh, really crafted things are. Yeah, no, I like what you said about sort of this blend of 
of craft and technology as well. But if you were on this show, Making It Though, which for our listeners that are not familiar, it's this new show hosted by Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, which is why I was originally drawn to it, where Nick Offerman, who actually is like a legitimate woodworker in his spare time, you know, it kind of is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the more the more expert host and Amy Poehler's like mainly just very enthusiastic <laughs> but they they kind of you know cheer on these makers through these various which are more like crafting competitions but I, I feel like if you were on the show like you'd be sitting there completely computer modeling <laughs> some like amazing thing and the person next to you would be like forming I don't know like a Halloween costume out of pool noodles <laughs> or something and you'd be modeling the same thing but I could see a way in which those two types of people could come together to make some really cool stuff or just those two kind of orientations towards making things could be combined um, like because as you said earlier too there's a lot of like trade skill and trade knowledge that goes into what you do and it's not just all the technological piece it sounds like yeah and so what's what's kind of interesting to you know picking up on that is um and as a side i'm sure when nick and amy hear this they'll get they'll be in touch and say that's a great idea absolutely um, <laughs> um but picking up on that um so are you familiar with hackathons or the term hackathon i mean i've heard of it yes. before yeah so it's a similar kind of thing it's basically um and again these i think tend to they tend to relate a little bit more towards um kind of purely digital things so um purely kind of computer programming and mm-hmm. and kind of like user interface stuff but a hackathon is basically kind of uh, a bunch of different people gather and they say okay we're going to form teams and we're basically going to spend 24 hours and we're going to try to create the coolest x um and then they'll just kind of go with it but but what's interesting is just kind of seeing the evolution of that where it's expanding to also, you know, we see these kind of kind of architecture based hackathons where it's it is that kind of, OK, we want to bring together a diverse group of people, some people who are really good with programming, some people who are really good with computer modeling and some people who are, you know, good builders and makers. And we want to see what we can kind of design and make and produce as quickly as possible. So what's interesting is, is that you know, to a degree, while you might think a makerspace is about kind of empowering the diversification of skills, um, the ultimate kind of outcome of it might be a greater specialization, but a kind of focal point to bring together a bunch of specialists. Because if you want to do something really amazing, it's like you can't be the copy print fax machine. Um, you can't do a little bit of everything. You're just going to be mediocre at all of it. You've got to be, you know, the, the greatest phone system or the greatest fax machine or the greatest copier. So you have to get more and more specialized to become really great at something. And so, but it gets narrow and narrower, the more specialized you get. But then if you can bring together a bunch of complementary skill sets or people with a bunch of complementary skill sets, then you can see these things kind of these, um, I guess, synchronicities happen or these kind of blendings of these skill sets happen where somebody might have an idea, somebody has the ability to very kind of quickly model that or, um, you know, computer analyze it. Somebody else has the ability to kind of uh, change that into what a machine would need to cut out parts and somebody else is a, a very skilled kind of craftsman. But those people all need to be together at the same time 
because at the outset of the idea, the craftsman or maybe the last person to touch it, maybe, you know, or almost definitely has to have a lot of input on the initial conceptualization of the thing. Why tweaking mm. one little thing here or one little thing there is going to, in the end, result in something that goes together in a much better way. Um, but again, for that craftsman to have that kind of deep, deep knowledge about how to put things together, they can't necessarily also be an expert at computer modeling. It is just, it's, it's kind of like the 10,000 hour rule thing, right? I mean, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 right, hours right. To, to be an expert. And then Richard Sennett wrote a book called The Craftsman, which he also kind of talked about just the amount of repetition that is required to, especially with things that are tactile, where you have to kind of develop a, a certain um, uh, manual dexterity to do things. So even playing instruments, you have to spend a certain amount of time just developing the tacit knowledge to then be able to actually apply it in kind of really beautiful and unique ways. Um, and that's, that was a big part of what I actually wound up doing um, as a grad student. I went into grad school mm. thinking I just wanted to become a big technology nerd in being great with 3D modeling and all this stuff. And what you know actually happened through circumstances, I became much more interested in the sociological history of the development of tools and, and technological tools especially. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's kind of a couple different schools of thought over, well, technology is meant to replace repetition. Anything which is repeatable, you should mm -hmm. automate. But mm -hmm. then if you look at it from this kind of Richard Sennett point of view of, well, so if you automate playing an instrument, you're actually taking away, I mean, there's the repetition, which is critical to being able to become a really great musician. Um, right. So those, those two kind of schools of thought are, are really fascinating to me. And that's, you know, what kind of led to this comment about in some ways, the idea of people becoming more familiar with how things are done may not actually lead to a diversification of skills, but a greater specialization with an appreciation for all the other complementary skills that are necessary to achieve a greater task. Yeah. And I really like that idea of, there being kind of room for people to both specialize, but then become part of a shared creative flow. Um, I think a lot of times like that specialization can sometimes lead to isolation. And so it seems to me like maker culture breaks through some of that, you know, within these labs or fab labs or, or spaces where people can tackle a problem together while still refining their particular know-how. Yeah, absolutely. I think at its, I think at its best, I think that that's, that's what it kind of could and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, what it should be. Well, thank you again for lending much more expertise than we could have ever lent to this conversation, legitimizing our podcast in some way, gracing <laughs> us with your presence. I will definitely let Nick Offerman and Amy Puller know that we've discovered you. Oh, I appreciate because, that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we've said before this yeah. podcast is like a launch pad to greater things. So just be ready. Well, yes, it could. I heard. Be. I heard Harold got like a speaking engagement. He did. He did. Just our friend. It was a little bit insulting that the creator of the podcast, Andrew, if you're listening, you should book me to speak to your class as well. Was not invited. Uh, but 
but it was I like to think that in the makerspace that is this podcast, we're the ones who bring together the people with the actual know-how. <laughs> That's right. exactly right. You are the unsung right. heroes of of the shallow research. Maker we're we're the shallow part. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be honest. But but thank you again. I really appreciate you giving up a little bit. Yeah, of thank my you. pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> This week, our guest who knows best edition is perhaps, if I may say so, from our best guest yet, um, in my humble opinion, which is uh, our guest this week is my mother, Janet Peterson, who is a dedicated crafter and talented quilter. She's going to join us to discuss um, how she got into um, quilting. And, you know, at times when we have guests, we talk about how we know them, but I think it's relatively self-explanatory. I've known her my whole life. But Laura, you know my mom a little bit as well. Right. And in the, in the quilting side of things, I mean, I know her as like the producer of some sort of marker of each life occasion. <laughs> I just picture every time you announce that like someone's getting married or having a baby, <laughs> Janet, that you're like, all right. I'm gonna make another quilt. <laughs> are, are you are you making an announcement, Laura? No. <laughs> I mean, the quilts are nice, but I feel like the expenses of a third child. <laughs> and that is to like. say, you have three quilts now uh, made by uh, made by my mom. The this is one, true. one for when you got married, one for each child, and sadly, Noodle has no quilt, but. Uh, <laughs> You know. Yeah, I, I've never gotten into dog quilts, to be honest. That's okay. <laughs> Is that a thing? That... <laughs> I guess we could make it one. <laughs> right. That might be your biggest hit yet. But I do appreciate what I've received, I, although I am not willing to raise a child for 18 years in exchange <laughs> for another one. Um, but tell us more about like how you got into quilting. That's a good question. I mean, well, I always like to sew since I was five years old, although that was not quilting, it was hand sewing. And when I think my kids were maybe teenagers or so, I started to get the yen to try to start quilting. And I wanted to do it in what I would call the purest way, meaning doing it all by hand. So the first quilts I made, I sewed all the pieces together by hand, sandwiched it together, and then quilted the top by hand. I'm now at the point where I sew the pieces together on the machine, and I bring it to a woman <laughs> to finish quilting the top for me, <laughs> because it's just, it's too time-consuming. Yes, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Especially with like the demand for <laughs> for your products. I mean, you've got to keep up with demand these days. But <laughs> I do remember that my mom went through a similar phase where we lived kind of near Amish country. So we like drove out to Amish country and she saw all these beautiful quilts and then she decided to buy her own materials and hand sew it. And I will say that that quilt is still sitting half finish in her closet <laughs> today. <laughs> so I, I must say I am very... I. Do not like, as they call it, UFOs, unfinished products, uh, oh. projects. So I, I'm, I try to be very 
strict about all my craft projects um, so that I don't start one until the other one is done. That seems like a wise approach as opposed to my mom who literally has spent 30 years. Like, yeah, but I would to say the average person is like that and they're more likely to have started it and not finished it. So we How can many, admire your discipline. Yeah. So that's a good question. How many quilts would you say that you have finished? I don't know. Point? I remember you asked me that question a while ago and it's, I don't have most of the quilts that I made in my house. I maybe have six or seven quilts that I made all the rest I've given away. I mean, besides giving away to friends and friends of my children for weddings and <laughs> babies, I also make quilts for, um, children being baptized at my church and, okay. and also for, um, high school seniors when they're graduating from our church, which has actually become really fun because I do it in collaboration with their, usually their mother. Oh, that's fun. You know, so you sit down and you come up with, you ask them something about the child and what you think they'd like to have you know, the quilt reflect their interests or, you know, each, each person has some different idea. And mm. one of the quilts I made was for a boy who's very into this Minecraft games. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, Minecraft quilts? well, that was a challenge because it was like, where am I going to find the fabric for this? I think the first question was, you were like, what is Minecraft? Yes, right. well, I did have to do a little research on that. And then there's so much to that, I had to start asking her a million questions. And she, she would have to, like, surreptitiously pump him about the different things that he liked to play and, I don't know, uh. people and things. And then I found, thank goodness for the Internet, I did find a, um, a website where I could get fabric. If I had had to, I would, I could have even designed my own. And that, that quilt, when they get presented in church, when that one was opened, people were like amazed. And the reason is because it looks like it's 3d. It's kind of hard to explain if you oh, don't cool. see it, but it's supposed to look 3d. And I could, it was very hard for me to see that as I was sewing it. But when it was held up, everybody could see, you know, they could see it. They got it. So that was good. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you did such custom work. So graduating seniors in the greater Sarasota area, all you have to do <laughs> oh, right. is it's... make it to the end of the year and you too could have. Well, they have to belong <laughs> to my church. <laughs> but that's like a small, a small thing. Yes, I mean, I, yeah. if, if, if we had 50 seniors, no, I wouldn't be doing it. We don't have that. Oh, yet. that's true. Well, we won't advertise your services that widely. I mean, now that we've announced this on the podcast, <laughs> your, your church is probably going to get an uptick in membership just oh just yeah that's cool. <laughs> it's called the the shallow research bump and right. uh, it's proven to get at least one facebook like on something <laughs> it's true i hope you're ready for it <laughs> <laughs> and i mean one of the things to note is i think my mom does she'll do kind of your standard not standard but she'll do these beautiful piece quilts um, which laura has one of them and i'm sitting on one right now in fact and um but also, you know, uh, cross-stitch quilts, you know, ones that have, like, themes to them. So she's made me one that's all Hitchcock films, 
Um, and you like had a, like when you were graduating from Duke, was it a Duke Chronicle one, or maybe just around like no, that was a T-shirt. That was a T-shirt quilt. We don't oh. want to talk. I don't like talking about that. I did not. <laughs> I wasn't totally right, well, happy with that quilt. I'm still not. And no. part of the problem is that. Chrissy had actually worn those t-shirts. It's probably yeah. better if you use new t-shirts that haven't been stretched out and washed. But, well, I mean, I, there was a quilt that you made me as a graduation gift, and it was a representation oh, cross stitch. Yeah, of all the oh, things that's that, right. And I, it was a great representation of kind of what your perception of my experience of college was. So there was oh, I a like whole... the way you say my, yes. my perception because <laughs> it was sort of adorable. It was like there was an entire square just devoted to chocolate. Um, <laughs> there was one that had like movies in it, I think, and then there was another square that oh, had course. like headlines of of, of sports. Um, uh, articles oh, articles in the rich. paper. Yes, um, that's and the, yeah. The, the fun. <laughs> I, I, I. It's funny how I've already forgotten about that quilt you know it's like there's so many of them but the ones with the cross stitch are in many ways the the ones that are the most fun to do mm -hmm. it requires a lot of research pinterest is my biggest friend because you can get a lot of patterns from them a lot of them are free they're just on the internet and um you can do, I just finished one for my granddaughter of all the Disney princesses. Oh, cute. And uh, right now I'm working on one. Luckily, my friend Patty will never hear this because I'm working on, she's, <laughs> she is the um, head of the church council and I'm the vice president. And she's going to be stepping down at the end of the year. So I'm making her a life quilt. As I, I'm going to, it's my, as Chrissy would say, it's my version of her of life. Her life. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it sounds like this is a glorified, beautiful version of people's lives. I know. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I love that there's a square devoted to chocolate and one devoted to movies. Because if it was just like my actual, based on actual time I spent in college, it would just be like an image of a bed. <laughs> <laughs> just like sleeping. <laughs> but Chrissy will be the first to tell you that I did make a mistake on the um, uh, the Hitchcock quilt. No, no, my students told me, and then we, we oh. agreed that we wouldn't tell you. I yeah. see. There's no but mistake. Somehow it got back anyway. Well, <laughs> but it, then you said there were two mistakes. Uh, well, they were the students are very smart. Yeah, they were getting into <laughs> like they were so specific. I was like, okay, that Christina. was a plan. You know, but just think about the impact that Christina is having on her students if they're able to discern this from your work. So you can be proud of that. Yeah, well, I was like, I've got some good students here. Like they're looking at quilts in new ways. Well, Chrissy and I are doing a collaboration now, although I don't know when she's going to finish it. She had this she had this very ambitious uh, goal, but I think it's died. No, it's still it's on life support. OK, she's cross stitching. What is it? Star Wars? Yes, I'm making a Star Wars quilt. Okay, well, you better f fulfill, like, the unfinished project role and make sure that you stick to it. That's yes. true. I, I mean, I haven't abandoned it. It's still sitting near the television. No, but when you first started, it was like, I'm going to do one square a month and I'm going to be... <laughs> How well, many have you gotten finished? I mean, is this interview about my own inability <laughs> to quilt? <laughs> because we're digging I'm, deep here. I need, I'm going to need, that's exactly the kind of advice that someone like me needs. Who's like, I've gotten started. 
Um, right. How do I get into? And especially if if people don't have access to a master quilter like yourself to to make them feel guilty, how do they get themselves into quilting? Well, but you shouldn't feel guilty. But I think <laughs> if someone wants to get into quilting, you have to be willing to accept that when you start, you'll make mistakes. This now, sounds terrible already. Um, no. Well, if you're if if you're mathematically inclined, you probably make a lot less mistakes. I'm not mathematically inclined, so I tend to buy more fabric than I think I need just in case I miscalculated. Yeah. So I have boxes and boxes of fabric. But also, the when you make that first square and it all comes out and it all fits together, there's a tremendous sense of satisfaction. Oh, my gosh, I really did cut those things out the right size. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> you never know. But, um, I mean, I, I think that's the thing if someone is going to, you know, if they're going to make a quilt, so you start with something small, maybe a, a baby quilt or something, you know, don't start with a king size quilt, which you'll feel like will never get done. All right. Maybe I will make noodle quilt. <laughs> she's only, <laughs> she's only eight easy. pounds. She's smaller. Yeah. She's smaller than a child. Dog quilts are the new, is the new entry <laughs> point. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, Christina, you need to keep working on your stars quilt. So this is not, this collaboration is not a blemish on your mom's record. <laughs> well, I, I might have some free time coming up. I don't know when that exactly will be, but I'm on it. Um, be, so besides kind of like a stick to and a willingness to make mistakes and also sort of a realistic <laughs> goal for your, your first quilt, um, what, what kinds of equipment would you need or, and how much time would you recommend that people spend if they wanted to get into quilting? Well, I think time-wise it's as much as you want. So if you spend a little time every night, you know, it doesn't matter how fast you finish it. Um, unless you have some sort of deadline or whatever. Um, the equipment is pretty simple. If you're going to use a sewing machine, obviously you need a sewing machine. I mean, <laughs> people that really get into doing everything, the tops of the quilts and everything, buy these huge machines these uh, that will quilt these long arm machines, which I, if I bought one, I'd have to have it in my living room. Because it would take, mm -hmm. it takes up so much room. I mean, the woman who I bring the quilts to, her half of her house is devoted to quilting. And yeah, what, it, would, what would be her dining room is where she has the long arm machine. And it's as long as a dining room table. I mean, this so is I, like what a makerspace needs. It's like a long this arm is true. sewing machine. Yeah. So Carl has voted down turning the dining room into <laughs> well, a quilting I've, space. I've never, I'm gonna really, guess. I've never really asked him because I'm not really, I'm, I'm, sure, not in, yeah. I'm not into that part of it. And I'm not into, like some people do embroidery. I'm not into that um, machine embroidery. And some people are into applique quilts. I've done a little applique, but not that much. I'm more into just the regular simple piecing of the fabrics. I like to bring the different colors together and um, that's how I'm creating it. Where someone that does applique or there's people that do piece quilts mm -hmm. that very intricate, tiny little pieces. Some of them are two inches big. I don't think I have the patience to do that. <laughs> Paper quilting, yeah. they call call it, because they sew it against a pattern on a piece of paper. That I oh. I I do not have the 
patience for, but if you see one of those finished quilts, it's it's a gore. It becomes a gorgeous picture. Yeah, well, I li- like what you're doing. Though, I mean, you said you like kind of visually bringing it together and the way that the colors all fit. But then it sounds like for some of the quilts you do for people at your church or things like that, or other quilts you've made, like you're really representing that person in some way or like telling a slice of their story too, right? Well, I like if I can, like a. A friend of mine who I used to work with, I made her a wedding quilt. So then when her first daughter was born, I used some fabric I had left over from the wedding quilt in the baby quilt. Well, that's nice. But I did have to tell her that because I don't think she really (laughs) was next to each other. I'm impressed that you like held on to that fabric and like remembered that. Well, that's what a quilter does. We don't throw away fabric. Oh, we true. never throw away fabric. It's a level of thoughtfulness too. <laughs> well, I am like kind of intimidated by really getting to know sewing machines. So one thing that I discovered that maybe is true around other places too, around the country too, is that our public library like has sewing nights, like where you can go and people will show you how to use oh, the machines. That's interesting. And so I wonder if that's true in other places too. Like that could be a way for people to access that skill set because I always did hand sewing as a kid, and like we never had machines, so. That's like a whole new step for me. Yeah, I'm really using a sewing machine is pretty simple, but you can get. I have a very simple sewing machine. When I when I, when I bought a new machine, um, I told the salesperson. I said, "Okay, I'm basically just using for quilting. I used to make clothing. I don't do that anymore. So I didn't want a lot of." newfangled you know you can get you can get all this computerized stuff and the machine will do you name it all kinds of special uh patterns and stitches and um I didn't feel I'd ever use them so I didn't think it was worth buying that and I'm pretty happy with the machine I have I'm actually considering buying a different one to try it but um I'm happy with it sews straight and it sews zigzag. That's, that's about all I need. <laughs> that's all you need. Yeah. Well, if the machine does too much for you, I feel like it takes away from like your own artistry. Then the artistry becomes just figuring out the machine <laughs> rather than the quilting. <laughs> that's true. Itself. <laughs> true. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise. Do we have any more questions to grill your mom about Christina? <laughs> No, I think we're good. I mean, I, I wish we had a way to, to post some of the pictures of these quilts. Um, yeah. Um, and I think you, because our last question was if you had a favorite quilt um, that you've ever done. Um, mm, that's a good, I think it's, it would probably be one of the cross-stitch quilts. Mm-hmm. Although I also like that um, quilt that I made you that had the, the big centerpiece based on, was it Degas? I forget which artist it was. You know, the one that's, the green one, the green and uh, peach one. You think? Uh, yeah. No, no, I made it before that. Oh yeah, yeah, my first, uh, my first, yeah. uh, my first big girl. That's quilt. I think, <laughs> I think that's all. I think I sewed that one totally by hand. I don't mm. remember for sure. I know I quilted it by hand on the top. I, I always like that was very simple. It was a pain in the neck to quilt because it was that big piece in the middle. Mm. But I liked the look of it. But. Um, I still think yep. probably it would be the cross. The cross stitch ones require a lot. They feel more creative when you're all done. Well, 
thank you for doing your part to lend some extra coziness and visual <laughs> appeal. To, Christina, I feel like your condo is just like swimming in beautiful quilts. And I know. I'm Ironically, lucky to have a few too. <laughs> and of course, I live in Florida, so I'm like, let's turn up the air conditioning yeah. and pull out these quilts. <laughs> I think my mistake was I should have had more children because now I'm thinking maybe I'll make my grandchildren some quilts they could use in later years. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> right. how many quilts can I make for them? <laughs> well. That is, I guess there is a limit, but you know, whoever, who would turn down one of your creations really. Um, but thank you again for chatting with us and being our guest that knows best. Well, it was nice to, to talk to you again, Laura. And of course I speak to Chrissy all the time. <laughs> but it was nice to speak to her as well. I'm sure. <laughs> well, thank you for being our guest. And uh, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope this inspires everyone to get out quilting. All right, so for this week's roundup, uh, we're going to look at some odds and ends that are emblematic of DIY culture. Um, in honor of do-it-yourself, Laura has brought all the recommendations <laughs> this week. And, uh, and so I'm excited to hear about my next project. Yes. Laura, what are your recommendations? Well, I feel like these recommendations are really for people who want to take advantage of uh, the handicraft of other artisans <laughs> and maybe are not so skilled <laughs> themselves. It's like the lazy person's guide to being tangentially related to the DIY world. <laughs> but um, my, not lazy. Like uh, we all have a small amount of time available to us. That's Obviously true. we have, you know, we got to split our time between DIY and listening to podcasts. So, right. you know, right. Yeah. So these next recommendations perhaps will take you to do some online shopping to purchase things other people have made at the same time <laughs> that you're listening to our podcast. Um, but so the first one is Spoonflower, um, which is just at spoonflower.com. And I discovered it in Durham in North Carolina when I lived there. A friend of mine who is much more skilled um, took me to one of their monthly crafting nights, which were actually really fun and accommodating of all skill levels and very open and friendly um and they'll take you on a little tour of their space um but so they tend to um bring together people though not just in north carolina um, but really from across the world who submit their designs online um, in order to be printed and sold as fabric wallpaper gift wrap decals um they have like a number of different options for the material that you can print the designs on and so then people will just go order like if they're making a dress like oh i need x number of yards of this fabric that was you know individually designed by someone in germany or whatever hmm. um and so it's a really cool way for people to showcase their work and kind of monetize it a little bit and then also just like get some good materials for yourself um, so I've, I've used it more on the gift wrap decal end of things. I don't <laughs> sew things together. Um, but they always have like these really fun contests too that are around different like seasonal themes or and it's just neat to see what people come up with and that there's like this thriving community and, and way for people to kind of share their handiwork. So I really like that site. Nice. And your second recommendation is kind of along those same lines, which seems to be DIY as kind of taking, you know, with your life and making things that are sort of more individual to you, not mass made. Yeah, that's true. Um, so eShakti is my next recommendation. Um, it's E-S-H-A-K-T-I. So I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, but they also have a website. It's all online retail for different um, custom tailor-made 
individually designed clothing. Um, and so the cool thing about that from the consumer perspective is that what you're buying is a little bit unique. Um, like once a design sells out, it doesn't come back again, but you can also tweak it to your exact specifications. So it's like type of sleeve, neckline, length that you want. And then if you pay, I think just like 10 bucks more, you can even give them their, your like exact measurements so you can be sure it'll fit perfectly. Hmm. So that takes like some of the kind of hesitation around buying things online and seeing, you know, wondering if they'll fit. Um, and I would say I've only bought a few things from there, um, but it's all relatively good quality. They give you a lot of information up front about the fabric um, and what you can expect. But everything is also under 50 bucks, which I think is a great deal um, for yeah. something that's so specific to you. Wow. Nice. And so uh, eShakti, Spoonflower. And then your next recommendation actually is, I guess, not exactly something that we can order, but something that, you know, feeds the soul. Right. Well, I guess you can order it up, like, on your <laughs> on-demand TV. <Yeah>. Or <laughs> on your... <laughs> right. It's probably going to be on Hulu or something at some point, right? Um, <laughs> but making it is a TV show that involves various crafters and makers that we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it uses, as our guest Josh pointed out earlier, like it's using the term maker really broadly um, (laughs) to include um, people who do more things like woodworking, paper crafts, that kind of thing, who are all in this competition hosted by Amy Puller and Nick Offerman, who are so charming together and just wonderful (laughs) like friends and and fellow actors. Um, And the thing I really like about it is that Um, It's just very sincere and earnest. And like they say a number of times that they just kind of want to put something good and happy and sort of pure feeling, you know, out into the world (laughs) by bringing these makers together. And like, they're all like supportive of each other, even though they're vying for this cash prize. But like during the various weeks, if they win a competition, they get this little patch that they can put on their like crafters apron. (laughs) And I also like how whoever's directing it, I mean, I think Amy and Nick are also producing it, um, but they, they let the two of them kind of just like joke around and talk to each other a little bit and play off of each other. It doesn't feel totally scripted, but then the scripted parts that they do also like they do in a kind of tongue in cheek way. Um, so like, I think the little catchphrase, like when they're about to start a you know, design challenge or something is like, let's go make it. And they're like, yep. <laughs> We had three months to come up with something and that's like all we came up with. Um, so I mean, definitely check it out if you just want some really light, charming entertainment and something that you could watch like with your kids too, if you have them. Like, I feel like it's an all ages type of show. Hmm. Is there a craft where they make a child for you that you could walk away? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Hopefully but... not. I think, I think that's yeah. legal. But, I think um... it's, at some point they make them make kids toys or something, but... <laughs> the first season just ended actually they just had the finale um but you can probably watch it online or on demand and then it did get just get renewed for a second season so there's more amy and nick joy to look forward to and it definitely i mean i sense kind of a theme here of things that are um kind of mass culture being made more individual or handmade even just in the the way that that show is put together from the way you're describing it um which kind of i think brings us to your final recommendation Yes. Okay. So we had your mom on earlier, who is like an advanced experience expert quilter. Um, And at one point I had delusions of making my own t-shirt quilt. 
I think I consulted you and her for some advice on that point and decided that I should not attempt this myself. Well, basically be too much of a pain. But I mean, if you remember, she said she's sort of like that was she was very unhappy about quilt that she made me so you could be an expert quilter and t-shirt quilts could could right. you as well the material yeah. right presents some challenges yes um so i discovered this place called project repat um and honestly the real reason i went from the thumb to begin with is that i feel like their prices are super reasonable and a lot of t-shirt quilt pieces online are like very expensive um but if you don't actually care about being like a, being a true quilted product I mean, it's very easy. Like you just send in your t-shirts in a bag. Um, I think that at one point you could like take a picture of how you wanted the t-shirts lined up Mm -hmm. um, and send it to them. And so I have a couple from them that I've like, you know, I've had a college t-shirt one, integrated Mm -hmm. various shirts from like Harold and I's past lives. They're used as throws (laughs) on our couch now. Um, And um so this so this company like you literally just you send it away the t-shirts are kind of put together there's like a fleece backing Hmm. um and it's just a really like down and dirty way to preserve your memories get a blanket that feels very you know personal to you Hmm. so project repat and they have special deals all the time i mean i want to say that the last quilt that i got from them was like 75 dollars or something Wow. So that's kind of the, the price point that you're looking at, probably 75 to maybe $150, depending on the size. Yeah, that's pretty good for keeping, I mean, how many t-shirts did you send in? Uh, yeah, I think that her, the, t- the quilt, one of them has like maybe 36 t-shirts, the other one has 50 or something. Yeah. So wow, you, that's a lot. Yeah. You know, want to like take advantage, if you want to like clear out some space in your closet and then immediately <laughs> fill that space with the quilt. <laughs> then (laughs) repurpose your old t-shirts so our roundup of the roundup this week laura is recommending spoon flower e shakti uh, making it with amy poehler and nick offerman and then project repat where you can send off your t-shirts and then get back a cozy blanket all right so thanks for joining us this week um, as always, um, you can reach us at shallowresearch at gmail.com and send in your questions, comments, and uh, any uh, recommendations for the, the More You Know segment. Thanks again. Listen in for some shallow